I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. From Pineapple Street Studios, I'm Eric Mennel, and this is Stay Away from Matthew McGill. Part 2. Jenny. When I got back to my apartment in New York, I put Matthew McGill's box on my living room floor, sat down next to it, crisscross applesauce, and started digging in. It was the spring of 2016, and at that point, my reasons for being interested in Matthew were twofold. Part of it was just that Matthew's life seemed pretty cool. I love an old newspaper. My living room is filled with old maps and anatomical drawings of rodents. A friend once referred to my style as, quote, used bookstore chic. And the box was filled with that kind of stuff. There were nine different copies of New York newspapers from the days after Matthew's father, a 747 pilot, was hijacked and taken to Cuba. There were dozens of revealing letters between Matthew and people close to him. There were black and white photos of his sister on horseback, an Olympic gold medalist. But also, the box painted a picture of an actual human life, one where the remarkable is mixed right in with the tedious. There was a piece of scrap paper that just noted how Matthew felt about oysters. Oysters, he wrote, yes, if you enjoy food that tastes like snot, you'll like oysters. There was a receipt from April 3rd, 1980, when Matthew went to Melton Opticians and Hearing Aid Center in Charleston, South Carolina. He spent $79.30 on new glasses. How often do you stumble into such a vivid portrait of a person? I decided to build a basic timeline of Matthew McGill's life, which was not easy. His driver's license said he was born in 1940, but his application for Social Security said he was born in 1946. The official New York State Vital Statistics record says he was born on March 31st, 1942. That's the actual date. It also had his birth name, Dor Watkins. He grew up in a wealthy enclave on Long Island and went to a prep school called Darrow in the mid-50s. I called dozens of people who went to the school with Matthew. I don't remember him terribly well. I thought one of them might remember some vivid story or have an old inscription in a textbook, something that would unlock a deeper understanding of who Matthew was. I don't even remember where he was from. Gosh. It was mostly dead ends. Now, you're not a lawyer, are you? No, 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 no. But when something big did turn up, it could feel really big. Among the various documents in Matthew's box was a divorce agreement from 1971. It showed Matthew's original name, Dor Watkins, and also the name of his first wife, a 1970s Broadway star. Her name is Jenny O'Hara. She's 79 now and lives in California. When I first reached out to Jenny, I was nervous the name Dor Watkins might scare her off. It had been more than 40 years, and I had no idea what their relationship was like. And so I sent a rather vague email to her agent, saying I wanted to talk about Jenny's time in the theater, about the golden age here in New York City. I didn't get a response. A couple weeks later, I decided to try again, this time being more straightforward. I wanted to talk about her ex-husband, Dor Watkins. He'd recently died, and I was working on a story about him. I got a call back that night from Jenny's agent telling me to hold. Hi, Jenny. Hi. 
Jenny was on the other line. How is your day going so far? <laughs> Very well, thanks. And yours? Uh, it's going well. Um, I have to imagine uh, this is not an interview you ever thought you would be doing. <laughs> no, no, I'm stunned. That night, Jenny told me she had no idea Dora died. I checked on Google and around on the internet looking for him over the years and never could find him because, obviously, he had changed his name. She also said she'd be happy to talk with me. She had lots of stories to share. Yeah, yeah, well, he was an interesting man. He was a tragedy in the making. Jenny, turns out, is still an actress and an incredibly prolific one at that. You've almost certainly seen her in something, though you probably don't realize you've seen her. She played Kevin James's mother on King of Queens. And I'm not just talking about the physical act of sex, which, by the way, your father... All right, Ma, that's it! <laughs> she played Jeffrey Tambor's sister in Transparent. You know, I wanted lipo for 20 years. My God. I didn't die not getting it. In fact, one of her biggest roles was based on the premise that people would not notice her. In the 2010 movie Devil, based on the M. Night Shyamalan story, a bunch of people are stuck in an elevator. And one of them is the devil, in disguise, killing everyone else. You know who I am now, yes? O'Hara, of course, is the devil, which puts her in an elite group, including Bruce Willis, Samuel L. Jackson, and the youngest Culkin brother. Living, breathing, M. Night Shyamalan twists. Who are you? Today? I'm an old woman. Are you ready for your turn, Anthony? From everything I saw inside the box, Dora's life in New York seemed truly wonderful and glamorous, like a Neil Simon play. And I thought maybe Jenny could help me understand what living that life was like and how things may have gone so downhill for him. How old were you when you met Dora? I was, um, let me work it out. About 24. About 24. And, mm-hmm. and, and how did you meet him? We were both on a soap opera, a time for us. I was a regular on the soap opera playing the uh, lead's best friend, and he was playing a movie star. Dor was, incredibly, an actor. He appeared on this ABC soap opera in 1964. Do not mind for us. Brought to you today by Tristan Nasal Mist for relief from sinus congestion. Though, turns out, Dor's part was small, really small. I couldn't find a scene of the show with him in it. Though there is this clip about a love triangle involving the local beefcake and a pair of sisters in town. You've got to be honest with yourself. I don't love her, but I do care for her. And I think she's the kind of girl that I could love. <laughs> well, they're always the same. There's a doctor, <laughs> there's a nurse, there's a romance. There are many romances. It was a long time ago. Did you, do you remember the first time you met Dor? Oh, yeah. It was during a rehearsal, and I thought, God, he's interesting. What was the most compelling thing about him to you? He was really good-looking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Noted. I was shallow then. In photos from this period, Dor has the look of a young, preppy movie star, like if George Clooney were in the Dead Poets Society. He had a focus. He had a visual focus, so that you felt he was really paying attention to you when you talked. Like he'd look you in the eye? Yeah, he would look you in the eye. But then <laughs> underneath there was something kind of dodgy. There were secrets. There were things unsaid. Dor had a lot of secrets. And you felt like you got a sense of that right away? Mm-hmm. His ability to attract people, 
And we started joking around, and I offered him a ride home. A ride home was a ride on O'Hara's Lambretta scooter. She and Dor took lots of rides on that scooter. They grew closer, fell in love, and they moved in together on the west side of Manhattan. They were in their early 20s, and the world Dor was building for the two of them, literally building, was almost out of a storybook. The apartment was terrific. It was two bedrooms, two bathrooms, living room, dining room, kitchen. And Dor took it upon himself to basically, while I was away doing summer stock, to strip all the walls, take out the windows, do all kinds of stuff to the apartment, which was, we did not own, it was a rental apartment. And he created this spare, beautiful space that we then filled up with plants. The air was wonderful. The Christian Science Monitor published a profile of Jenny and Dorr's Manhattan apartment. Not a profile of Jenny and Dorr, just the apartment. The headline was, their home is a greenhouse. It said they kept their apartment at exactly 67 degrees Fahrenheit, which, according to Dorr, was the point where humans and plants are both most comfortable, without the other suffering too much. It was a good life, a sort of New York dream, the kind a lot of people imagine for themselves when they move here in their 20s, the kind where you can just stumble into someone or something remarkable. It was very nice. We had a monkey. You had a monkey? We had a monkey, a monkey, a minky. Yeah, after we were married, we had gone up to Rayo's at 116th and Pleasant to have dinner. It was a very well-known Italian restaurant, kind of a mob restaurant at that time. Uh-huh. And hard to get a reservation, but we had one and we went. And there was a guy outside who was probably doing drugs or at least alcohol, and uh-huh. he had a monkey on a leash on his shoulder. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was a little squirrel monkey, and he was panhandling. So we gave him some money, and then he said, you want to buy the monkey? <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> you want to buy the monkey? And I said, well, how much is it? And he said, 20 bucks. He had a little collar around his hips, uh-huh. and all the hair was worn off. Oh. And I'm looking at Dora, and he's looking at me, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I can't leave this monkey with this guy. So I gave him $20, and he put the monkey on my shoulder. And left. Now we're standing there, and I'm I'm wearing a monkey, <laughs> and we have a reservation for a fabulous Italian dinner inside. So we think, what are we going to do? Well, we just well, let's we'll just go in, just go in, pop the monkey in my purse, and we'll just go in. <laughs> so we went in, sat down at the bar. The monkey's in your purse. The monkey's in my purse. <laughs> and the owner of the restaurant came over to me and he said. I hear you got a monk. (laughs) And I said, yes, we do. (laughs) How'd you get it? I said, the guy outside was selling it, and he didn't look like he was treating it really well, so we bought it. And he said, you know, when I was a kid, the baker's kid, he had a monk. He didn't treat that monk no good either. We fixed him up. We saved the monk. So she did good. She did good. Come on, sit down. Dinner's on me. So we sat down, had a wonderful dinner, uh, put the monkey on my shoulder and got in a cab and went back to West End Avenue. (laughs) It was amazing. Jenny and Dor kept the monkey for about a year. They named him Sidney. And then Jenny tells me something that truly melts my brain. It turns out Dor had an uncle in Silver Springs, Florida, 
who wrestled alligators for Hollywood films. He also kept a pack of monkeys that tourists could come visit on his riverboat. So figuring that would be a better home for Sydney, Jenny and Dor drove him down to live on the river. When Jenny tells me this, I cannot help but note the coincidence. My best friend and I used to canoe those rivers growing up, and occasionally, we'd see monkeys on the banks. There was a legend they were left behind after an old Tarzan movie. I tell Jenny, it's very possible I have actually seen a descendant of Sydney. And we both laugh. Because now, we are connected by two different men from her past. So much of Jenny and Dora's early relationship felt like a fairy tale. I actually got a little envious hearing about it. They'd spend days at a time on the water, on a 52-foot-long sailboat. There's one beautiful picture of Dora in the box, face chiseled and tanned, manning the lines. Oh, God, he was a wonderful sailor. He could single-handed sail that boat. It was the best time I ever had with Dora. Was that time on the boat. Just the two of us, sailing, eating, sleeping. Making love, sailing, eating, sleeping. We would throw lines out with hooks and worms on the back and troll for bluefish, pull them in, cook them, eat them. It was lovely. (laughs) Oh, God. We were up in Rhode Island. I was fluffing and puffing in the head down below (laughs) because we were coming into port. Like doing your makeup and... (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Smiling at myself in the mirror, and we went aground. I pitched into the mirror, crashed right into it, and knocked the caps on my front teeth out. What? (laughs) When I was a kid, right after my front teeth came in, Mm -hmm. I pitched over the handlebars of a bike and landed on them. (laughs) There had been peg teeth and caps on the first four teeth across the front ever since then. Wow. I never would have guessed. They look look great. (laughs) (laughs) They do. (laughs) But uh, we had to get me back to the city quickly to the dentist to get them repaired. Oh, my God. It was just... But the trips were... uh, The trips were what it should have been all the time. Hmm. It was magical. And then clunk back to life. (laughs) (laughs) After the break, the ship runs aground, and things for Jenny and Dor take a turn. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest. 
and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Jenny O'Hara and Dor Watkins were married in 1968 in New York. It was a small wedding with just a couple of close family and friends. Jenny wore a silk organza dress and carried a white bouquet. The wedding was at the little church around the corner, a rather famous church for actors in the city. For her part, Jenny acted a lot, off-Broadway and in summer touring troops. She did a commercial featuring a Jim Henson puppet for a fabric finish called Linnet. One merely sprayeth and ironeth. Maybe I should try this. Dorr, meanwhile, did not get more roles. Acting dried up for him pretty quickly. Instead, he developed an eye for interior design. He took up woodworking and began building furniture. And he started his own nursery, the first in what would become a long line of nurseries he'd open over the rest of his life. It was called Jacob O'Hara. He brought up tropical plants from Florida and uh, sell them to businesses, sell them wholesale, sell them retail, and do designs for corporations. Everything was in my name, all the paperwork, all of that stuff. Hence the name Jacob O'Hara, or J. O'Hara. Why is that? Uh, So that if it went belly up and had to go bankrupt, I was not going to start another business, and he could start another business right away. And I thought that made sense, and and I invested in it and put a lot of money in it, Mm -hmm. because Dora didn't have money at that time. And it became this incredibly successful business. Dor kept the list of the big clients he worked with. Bergdorf Goodman, the Waldorf Astoria, Delta. And he also kept a running list of all the editorials that featured the company. They were in the New York Times, Elle, Vogue. New York Magazine called it, quote, easily the most impressive new shop in town. But the success didn't satisfy Dor. Dor was really having problems with my being an actor. What kind of problems? He didn't want me to be an actor. I was offered another show and he didn't want me to do it. And I said, what? What are you talking about? This is what I do. And he just, he didn't. He said, well, you've just been doing a show. And I thought, what the hell are you talking about? Who do you think you married? Hmm. And then I went and, and did cabaret for another summer. And I came back and I was offered my first Broadway musical and he wanted me to turn it down. Jenny? did not turn the show down. The fig leaves are falling all over the It was called The Fig Leaves Are Falling. It's a musical about a stagnant marriage and how it slowly falls apart. All of you statues, is looking at you, scars of fig leaves. It was a huge moment for Jenny, a real payoff after years of hard work. But she told me one story about the show and about Dor that just seemed, I don't know, off. On opening night, he went down the center aisle with a sign pinned onto his back. It was a, a piece of regular paper, like 8 by 11, that he had scotch taped to the back of his jacket that said, she's my wife. 
And he was getting applause, as was I. It's all about her, but it's all about me, but it's all about her. I still have it. I came across it. Really? Yes, in a manila folder full of memorabilia. Oh, my gosh. It was a weird behavior. Not the kind of memory door mentioned in the box. And it gives me pause, because, honestly, I hadn't considered that other people in Dora's life would likely have their own boxes or manila folders full of stuff that told a different story about who Dora was. As Jenny's career was taking off, life with Dora started to change. Dora was having trouble managing the nursery. He told her he was overwhelmed, that he needed her help. Dora wanted me to work there, which I did part of the time. I was doing Promises, Promises on Broadway and going and watering plants in a truck wait, between you were, matinee. You, <laughs> wait, you were between, the lead, you were the lead yeah. in a Broadway musical, but as your right. side hustle, you were like, Watering yes. plants? Wow. Yes, this is something that Dor needed me to do. Okay. He needed me to be interested in that, to do it. He needed that control. So between shows on matinee days, I'm in a truck <laughs> checking installations. Oi. How did you feel about it? I was confused and pissed off. It was not right. And Dor was complaining once about... Uh, that I never came out to the greenhouses in New Jersey. So I went out, and what he had me doing was picking up cigarette butts from the gravel, and I thought, look at this. This is so twisted. What finally broke us up, I mean, we should have been done years before, but both of us were busy, so it took about four and a half years. But someone sent me an anonymous letter that he was having an affair with his greenhouse manager. And I got this letter saying that I was a fool and everybody knew it and, you know, la, 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 la. And I took the letter into my shrink and uh, he said, well, you know, whoever wrote this letter is not a friend of his or a friend of yours. Hmm. So I confronted Dor with it and he said that I was crazy. And... Uh, if I didn't sign over all the paperwork on the greenhouse to him, by the end of the week, he was going to move out and go to Ohio and take a job there in a big greenhouse that he'd been offered. And I said, you really mean that? And he said, yeah. So every day I'd asked him, and every day he said yes. And by the time the week was up, I had a lawyer, I had a bodyguard with a gun because I didn't know what he would do. Oh, wow. I went down to court, picked up the bodyguard who was just finishing on another case, went to the greenhouse, told the manager uh, that I needed her to go up to the office, which was in our apartment, uh, to talk about some things. And as we left, I had the locks changed on the greenhouse. We went up there. I fired door. I fired her had the locks changed on the house. Because everything had been in your name. You could yeah. do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it was a long time coming, but it also it must have been hard. I mean, you guys had been together a long time. Yeah, it was hard. And what was even harder is that after that, he went into full romance mode. And went about uh, seducing me back into the relationship which was fun and great. And 
I let him back into the greenhouse. And he got angry at me about something and threw a container of milk that splashed all over my face and my clothes. And I said, that's it, get out, get out. You're done. And this was in front of the staff. About five days later, he was set up for business on his own in a field in New Jersey across the river with all these plants and money was missing from the greenhouse accounts. Hmm. So he had been embezzling money Hmm. out of the company all that time. I don't know if he ever had any authentic moments, any moments of peace. It was like being in a bad novel. There's an article about Jenny in the September 10th, 1973 edition of the New York Times. Right next to a story about Watergate is a photo of Jenny in a plaid shirt at the nursery, auctioning off plants. By the time she and Dora divorced, she'd become an expert, and she spent her evening selling off inventory and giving advice to people about how to care for their plants. This is from the article. A great believer in touching plants, Miss O'Hara caresses and swirls plants around during the auction. Any living thing likes attention, she said. What better way to show a plant affection than by touching it? Grabbing a startled customer by the arm, she asks, don't you like to be touched? Eventually, Jenny closed the nursery. She says she donated the last of her plants to a botanical garden. She went on to an incredibly successful career in Hollywood. She only ever heard from Dora a couple more times, once by mail. He sent me this dark night of the soul letter in which he presented himself as such a pained and destroyed victim of my desire to succeed. I was, you know, I've never, I I still have that too. I've never finished reading it. It's about five pages long and it just pissed me off so much. I thought, I don't want to read this. You just stopped halfway through? Yeah. Jenny actually dug up this letter and sent it to me. It's hard to read. Dor sounds desperate and fragile and honestly, a little deluded. He wants Jenny to give up acting and to work with him at the greenhouse. He writes, You still overshadow and threaten with your yearning for success for yourself. The company gets me up in the morning and puts me to bed at night. I have not yet succeeded. I am stymied without you. There's one small line at the very end that helps me understand how Dor could pull people so close to him. To Jenny, he writes, With all, I still hear you calling me from the steps of the porch, and no other sound intrudes. Just your voice, clear and very bright. Who wouldn't want somebody to hear them that way? We wrap up the interview and I say goodbye. How about I just email it to you? Would that be easiest? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll do That'd that. That'd be great. Thank you again, Jenny. I thought talking with Jenny would illuminate the handsome, magnetic guy I had seen pictures of inside the box. Instead, it was like she had pulled the glossy filter off everything. Yeah, Matthew was a crank and a bad salesman, but it hadn't really occurred to me that he may also be a bad husband. 
manipulative, to the point of abusive. And what's more, he felt like a victim. That was upsetting because, you know, quantifiably, he wasn't. Back then, I was still walking to and from work with my old bow-legged dog, which gave me more time than I'd like to turn this all over and spin out about it. How bad was Matthew McGill? What else might I find if I dug further into the box? I felt like I had fallen into a bit of a trap. On the one hand, if I told the story laid out in the box, I'd be doing exactly what Matthew wanted. And let's be real, the world did not need another podcast about the adventures of a good-looking white guy who was bad to the women in his life. On the other hand, listening to Jenny, her story felt more honest than anything I had seen in the box. Harder and more blemished, but also more true to life. And that difference between Matthew's story of his life and Jenny's, I couldn't help but think there was something important there. Something about the way we see ourselves compared to the effect we have on other people. I don't know, I couldn't articulate it. It just felt like I shouldn't look away. Not yet. So, in spite of myself, I decided to keep going. I wanted to know what happened with Matthew after he left New York, and I wanted to know how he became Matthew at all. So I needed to find the person who was with him when he went on the run from the government and changed his name. Which meant I needed to go back home, to Florida. That's next. Stay Away From Matthew McGill was created by me, Eric Mennel, with Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by Elliot Adler and me, edited by Joel Lovell and Hilary Frank, editing help from Lisa Pollack. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky, fact-checking and research by Sarah Ivory, mixing by Hannes Brown. Special thanks to Carmen Maria Machado. Production management by Grace Chen, social by Hadim Jang, marketing and visuals by Kurt Courtney and Josefina Francis at Cadence 13. Unlicensed podcast therapist, Rachel Ward. Early reporting for this project was supported by Gimlet Media, original scoring by Blank Forms, our credit song, On the Cusp, is by the band Any Kind.
This show is a co-production of Pineapple Street Studios and Odyssey. Odyssey is home for all the podcasts, music, news, and sports audio that matters to you. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. You can binge this whole series there. It is available for free in the App Store or on Google Play. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y.